sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger darkness, new every morning, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. So tender, He's calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood with the dead we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is Welcome to week six of our series, What Kind of God? Well, I hope that song ministered to you as much as it did to me. You know, there's a line in there that is repeated over and over again that is particularly powerful. It says, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You know, we're going to talk about His mercy, but we're also going to talk about four other attributes. Yes, we're going to take on five attributes at once, which is a pretty daunting task. But I love this song because of how it encompasses a lot of what we're going to talk about this, this morning. It says, What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. You know, God is loving, as we're going to discover in just a minute. But His love doesn't keep track of the wrongs that we've done. It doesn't keep account of everything we've done against Him. It goes on and says, He's omniscient, He's all-knowing, but He counts not the sum of our sins. He knows everything about us. He knows every one of our thoughts. He knows everything we've ever done, everything we will ever do, but He doesn't count them against us because of His love as expressed through Jesus Christ. In other words, they're thrown into the sea, as the song says, without bottom or shore. His sea of love is so great that it can hold every one of our sins and not hold them against, against us. So our sins may be many, but His mercy is more. So we're going to look at His mercy this morning. Now, as we tackle these five attributes, I'm reminded of just how 
incapable I am to address these things. These are the deep things of God, and, and I feel way out of my league in trying to address one attribute, let alone five at the same time. And I ran across a quote this week that says, man attempting to explain God's character is like a newborn trying to teach Chinese to a houseplant. One lacks understanding and the other comprehension. Now, I'll be honest, that's my quote. Uh, that's how I feel. Uh, every time I try to teach these attributes, every time I study these attributes, I'm blown away by the depth of God's character and how difficult it is for me, a mere man, to try to explain to you, other mere men, what these attributes mean and what they tell us about our God. But as we dig in this today, we're going we're gonna to look at quite a few attributes at once and, and we're going to get really personal. Okay, we're going we're gonna to dig in and we're going to look at the attributes that are really going to get close to home in my life and in your life. You know, these attributes of God, whether we're talking about as omniscience, as omnisapience, uh, it doesn't really matter which one we're talking about. They're not meant to be esoteric uh, out there in the, the ether where we can't get our heads and hearts around them. They're not just the domain of scholars, uh, writers of commentaries, uh, seminary professors, pastors and teachers of the Word of God. They're meant for each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. But the truth is, some of these attributes are more relatable than others. And the five we're going to look at today are highly relatable. And that's why I wanted to keep them together, because as we continue to talk about what kind of God it is that we worship, it's important for us to realize that this God, this holy God, as we talked about last week, who's separate from us, distinct from us, who is transcendent from us, wholly different from us, is still a loving, merciful, and gracious God, as we'll see today. So what I want to begin with is this idea that we worship a good God. Now, that word good is overused, right? It's, I can have a good meal, I can have a good friend, I can have a good time. Um, we've we've kind of taken that word and trivialized it. But when the scriptures talk about God as being good, there's a depth there that sometimes we miss. And we don't often talk about the goodness, goodness of God. And this word is one that's going to encompass everything that we're going to talk about today. The goodness of God. It's going to include His love, His mercy, His grace, and His patience. So these five attributes are all tied together. And, and in a sense, they're inseparable. You can't have a good God who's not loving. You can't have a good God who's not merciful, gracious, or patient. All of these things are linked together. And in some cases, they're often seen, seen as synonyms. We often talk about the goodness of God as being nothing more, nothing less than the love of God. And there's truth in that, but the real truth is these are all distinct attributes, but they are, as I said earlier, inseparable. They go together. And I can't think of a passage that better illustrates this than Exodus chapter 33. So if you've got your Bible, turn there, and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Exodus chapter 33 in the story of the people of Israel who have been redeemed by God, they've been set free from their slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. And as we pick it up in chapter 33, they're at Mount Sinai, where Moses is going to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, those two tablets written with the Ten Laws of God. But we find him on Mount Sinai, and he's going to have a conversation with God. Now, Follow this closely, because this is really important to understanding these five attributes. Verse 13 says, Now therefore, if I, Moses, have found favor in your sight, God, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor, favor in your sight. Now, what's going on here? Moses is making a request of God. He says, Show me your ways, the ways of God that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He wants a better understanding of God. And he particularly says, I want to know your ways, how you work, what makes you tick. Now, this is interesting because Moses has been walking with God, talking with God all the way back to the time when he saw God in the burning bush. 
he, he has had conversations with God. He has experienced the power of God in the ten plagues that he brought upon the people of Israel. Uh, they've been led by God through the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. So this is an interesting request at this point in time that he says, Please show me your ways that I may know you in order that I might find favor in your sight. And God answers him in verse 14 and says, My presence will go with you. Well, it already had been. In a way, God's assuring him of his continued presence. And he said to him, If, this is Moses speaking, if your presence will not go with me, in other words, if you decide to withdraw your presence, don't bring us up from here. In other words, let's not move another step. Let's just stay right here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? So, God promises that my favor, my presence, will go with you, and I will give you rest. He's making an assurance to Moses. But Moses is somewhat reticent. He's afraid of losing God's presence. Now, he's up on Mount Sinai. He's having these incredible conversations with God on top of the mountain. And it's really important to him that this continue and that he find favor with God. And he asks in verse 16, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? Is it not in the fact that you continue to guide me as the leader of the people of Israel, that you continue to go with me and, and allow me to be your emissary to these people so that we are distinct, I, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? How shall it be known that I have found favor? See, this is driving Moses in this conversation. And he knows that the presence of God is one of the key ways for him knowing that he has the favor of God. So listen to what happens. And this is where it gets really interesting. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Now, last week we talked about the holiness of God, the separateness of God, the, the distinctiveness of God. But here we have this wonderful idea that God is going to do for Moses what he asks. And he says, I know you by name. There's an intimacy there. There's a relationship there. Now, look at what Moses says at this point in time. Moses said, verse 18, please show me your glory. First of all, God says, you have found favor in my sight. You, Moses, have, have found favor in the sight of a holy God. And then Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, that's a bold request. And I'm not even sure Moses knows what he's asking for. But I am fascinated by what God says to him in response. Look at verse 19. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Moses asked to see God's glory. Show me your glory. And then God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. We can read this passage and blow right past the significance of what God is saying. See, God is responding to the request to see his glory by saying, I'm going to show you my goodness. That word in Hebrew means fairness, his beauty, joy, prosperity, his goodness, everything about God that makes him God. See, Moses had asked to see God's glory, but God says, I'm going to show you my goodness. And that's why I've put the other four attributes we're going to look at under this umbrella of God's goodness. Because I think that's exactly what happens in this passage. See, God is going to show Moses those parts of his character, his divine essence that would be most relevant to Moses at this, this particular time in his life. Moses needed to know the goodness of God as evident in his love, his mercy, his grace, and his patience. See, God is a loving God. God's a merciful God, a gracious God, a patient God. And that is an expression of his goodness. And that's exactly what Moses needed to know as he prepares to continue his leading of the people across the wilderness to the promised land. So the goodness of God. 
there's a lot in the scriptures that talk about the goodness of God. And uh, there's quite a few passages in the Psalms alone that deal with his goodness. Look at this in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Taste, see. Uh, they're both dealing with senses because God's goodness is not ethereal. It's practical. It's relevant. You can taste it. You can see it. You can experience it in your life. Psalm 107.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. He's good in every way. Uh, he's good all the time. And He's good to all, Psalm 145.9 tells us. God shows His goodness to all people, both the lost and the saved, the rebellious and the obedient. The Lord is good. We know from Psalm 119.68 that God is good and He does good. Not only is it His character, it shows up in His actions, it shows up in His attitudes. Everything about God is good. Now, Tony Evans, in his book, Theology You Can Count On, gives this definition. God's goodness can be defined as the collective perfections of His nature and the benevolence of His acts. It's the essence of all of His natures encompassed into one thought, the goodness of God. And it shows up in benevolent acts. See, it's one thing to have a God who is all-wise, but if we have an all-wise God who's not loving, kind, gracious, patient, and merciful, it's really no help to us because He just knows our sins. He just knows everything about us. But these five attributes that we're looking at give us the assurance that our God and all of His characteristics is someone who we can go to, who we can come to, and His goodness allows us to experience something about Him that we can deal with in everyday life. You see, Moses was being given a glimpse of God's glory in the form of some very, very specific attributes. And they're outlined in this passage. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This is God speaking again. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, as the holy God, the the Almighty God, omniscient God, the omnisapient God. He is the one who chooses who He will show His grace and mercy to. But He will show grace and He will show mercy. He goes on and says, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, speaking to Moses. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. God's going to show him his glory. God's going to allow him to see something about him. But what's interesting about this passage is, look at what he says in verse 22. While my glory passes by. Now again, we can read this and blow right past the significance of it. He says, my glory is going to pass by. But earlier he said, my goodness will pass before you. Well, which is it? Is Moses going to get to see his glory or is he going to get to see God's goodness? See, now he says, it's my glory that will pass by. What's really going on here is we're getting to see that God's glory and goodness go together. God's goodness on display reveals his glory. If you want to know just how glorious God is, you can look at creation you can go to the Grand Canyon, look over the edge and be amazed and stand in awe at the beauty of God, the glory of God. You can see a sunrise. You can watch a sunset. You can enjoy the beauty of God's creation, but you'll never fully understand God's glory until you see it in His goodness, His goodness on display in your life. I love what A.W. Tozer says about the goodness of God. It's that which dis disposes Him to be kind, cordial, benevolent and full of goodwill toward man. See, the goodness of God is, is an attribute that is reserved for you and I as God's creation, the apex of His creation for mankind. God shows us His goodness, His kindness, His cordiality, His benevolence. 
Now look what happens as we move into chapter 34 of the book of Exodus. Starting in verse 4, we're still at Mount Sinai, and Moses is going to get the law from God. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, what does he say here? Don't miss this. He declares his name. He proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, what had God told Moses? I'm going to show you my goodness. And in doing so, you're going to know my glory. But what does he show him? He doesn't necessarily show him as much as he tells him. I am the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. This is a, a significant time in the life of Moses, but also a significant moment for you and I to get our heads around because of what's going on in these two chapters, in Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. See, God said, I'm going to proclaim my name. How did he do it? He proclaimed it by speaking about his mercy, his grace, his patience, and love. He declares his glory by telling Moses that I am merciful, gracious, patient, loving, kind, tolerant, benevolent. See, if we want to know the glory of God, if we want to know what even his name means to us, it takes the form of these attributes. They, they tell us who our God is. And this is why David wrote in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Then he goes on and says, He, God, made known his ways to Moses. Remember what Moses asked, Show me your ways. Well, he made his ways known, his acts to the people of Israel. Now catch this. His mercy, his grace, his patience, and his love. You know, we read the Old Testament and we get all caught up in the acts of God as they appear in his miracles, in the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, all the things he does, the manna that rains down from heaven. We, we get enamored with those physical acts and we miss what's behind them. It's his mercy, his grace, his patience, and his love. Here, once again, in the Psalms, we have those four attributes that we're going to look at. Mercy, grace, patience, and love articulated by David when thinking about his God, about his God and the name of his God and the glory of his God. So let's look at the love of God, that steadfast love of God. Wayne Grudem says God's love means that he eternally gives of himself to others. What a great definition. Once again, love is a term that's been overused and, to be honest, abused. And, and it doesn't mean anything. I can love ice cream. I can uh, love the Rangers. I, I can sometimes love the Cowboys. But this is a different kind of love. It's, it's the love of God that eternally gives himself to others. Tony Evans says the love of God is his joyful self-determination. In other words, he decides to reflect the goodness of his will and glory by meeting the needs of mankind. Doing for you and I what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's the love of God. So this, this love is not something that's ethereal. It's, it's not um, touchy-feely. It's not a Hallmark card kind of love. This is a very practical love. It's an unconditional love. How do we know that? Well, we can study the, the nation of Israel, and we see it in these two chapters, and we're going to see it in just a minute as we proceed further in this study, that God loved the people of Israel in spite of the people of Israel. 
If you, if you know anything about their history in the Old Testament, it's not a good one. It's got some pretty deep holes in it in terms of um, the valleys of their lives. They have a few moments on the peak, but they spend most of the time down in the valley. And yet he loved them in spite of them. Look at this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, God didn't redeem Israel because they deserved it. He didn't redeem them because they were large in number and they were a great nation already. He chose them when they were living as slaves in the land of Egypt, and they were not worshiping him as their God at that point in time. So his love is unconditional, and he doesn't love us because we're lovable. You know, the truth is none of us are lovable. The scriptures tell us that God shows his love for us, then, that it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's it's when we're in the midst of our sin that He loves us, not after we fixed ourselves, not after we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 1 John 4.10 says, This is real love, not that we loved God, in other words, we loved Him first, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. There's that sacrificial part of God's love. He loves us even when we're at our most unlovable. And he gives of himself sacrificially, self-giving. You know, that's something that we don't really think about when we think about God and his love for us. But the scriptures tell us in John 3, 16, this is how God loved the world. How? How did he show his love? He gave his one and only son. He sacrificed. He gave of himself his own son to die in my place and in your place. Romans 8, 32 says, God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us. He sacrificed him on our behalf. So this is an incredible kind of love we're talking about here. And it's unfailing and it's everlasting. In other words, it's never going to go away. That's why Paul told the Romans, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. You know, I was told a long time ago, and it stuck with me all these years, there's nothing I can do that will make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do that will make him love me less. He loves me, and it's an unfailing, everlasting love. Therefore, as the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. We have a loving God. That's an expression of his goodness. But we also have a merciful God. The mercy of God. Mercy, according to Lewis Berry Schaefer, is God's goodness exercised in behalf of the need of his creatures. His creatures. God's goodness put on display for those who have needs. And this is particularly talking about mankind, not the animal kingdom, that God exercises his goodness in the form of his mercy on behalf of you and I. That's an amazing thought. Charles Ryrie says, it's that aspect of God's goodness that causes him to show pity and compassion. Now, if you think about it, that we, we serve a holy God, a righteous God, a sinless God, an all-knowing God, and yet he condescends to show us pity and compassion as a form of his goodness, and it shows up in his mercy. And Wayne Grudem says, his mercy is his goodness towards those in distress and misery. Now you may stop and say, well, then I only get his mercy when I'm in trouble? Well, to a certain degree, yes, but the truth is his mercy is for all of us who find ourselves in distress and misery because of the presence of sin. He extends mercy, and that includes all mankind. His mercy is made available to all, and it's to those who are in need, particularly those who are in need of salvation. See, if God didn't show mercy, none of us would be saved. If God was not merciful, he never would have sent his son to die in our place. Our need prompted his mercy. And it's when we're in trouble that we cry out to God for mercy, Listen to David. He says, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, 
for his mercy is great. When you're in trouble, you call out. I've often said, we all become prayer warriors in our times of greatest need. When we're in distress, we call out to the God of mercy. Paul says in Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. That's the kind of God we worship. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. And that mercy is inexhaustible. It'll never run out. In Lamentations, we read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. You'll wake up tomorrow morning and there'll be new mercies. You never do deplete the mercy of God. And here's the incredible thing. It's unmerited and undeserved. You can't do anything to earn the mercy of God. And again, I can't think of a passage that illustrates this better than Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, Nehemiah is a book that's written about uh, the people of Israel getting ready to come out of their 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and God is going to allow them to return to the land. As a matter of fact, at this point in chapter 9, they are already back in the land. And they're in the process of rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and repopulating the city and restoring things to the way they had been before. And Nehemiah calls the people together and he reads to them the law of God. And we pick it up in chapter 9 in verse 15. And he's recounting to the people of Israel, those who've returned from captivity in Babylon, and they're now back in Judah, in the land of promise, and particularly in the city of Jerusalem. He says, About God, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. Speaking of the Israelites when they were making that move from Egypt to the promised land hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. He says, God, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now, don't miss this. He's rehearsing or going back over the history of Israel for the people of Israel who are now back in the land of promise after 70 years of captivity. And he's telling them everything that God had done for their ancestors. But listen to what it says in verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. These people were so rebellious that they decided rather than follow God who had set them free from captivity, they wanted to go back to Egypt and they appointed somebody to lead them. After all God had done for them, this is how they show their thanks. But listen to what it says. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. There's those four attributes of God again, as articulated by Nehemiah and included is his mercy. In rehearsing, going over the history of the Israelites, he reminds the current Israelites, who are once again back in the land of promise, based on the mercy of God. He reminds them of what their ancestors did. And he reminds them that God continued to show forgiveness, mercy, grace, patience, and love, and did not forsake them. He didn't turn his back on them. He could have. He had every right to, but he didn't because of his mercy. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them. Again, God didn't turn his back. He showed them mercy. In their distress, he showed them mercy. And then it goes on and talks about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them. God continued to guide and direct them day and night says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, didn't withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for the, their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. We're told elsewhere that their sandals didn't wear it out, their clothes didn't wear out. This was an amazing thing that God did for the people of Israel. He was merciful, but he was also gracious, and he is gracious. The grace of God 
This is an attribute we're more familiar, familiar with, but sometimes we take it for granted. I love what Wayne Grudem says, God's grace is His goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. See, we love to talk about God's grace, sing songs about God's grace, but we fail to recognize and remember that His grace is His goodness manifested to those who really deserve punishment. Without God's grace, we have no hope. Without God's grace, we have no eternity. Because grace is the unmerited favor of God shown to man primarily in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The greatest expression of God's grace was by Him sending Jesus Christ to die in my place and your place. And notice it says it's unmerited. We didn't deserve it. He didn't do it because we had done something to earn it. He did it even though we didn't deserve it. And I love what Tony Evans says. His grace is his inexhaustible supply of goodness by which he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Don't miss that. You could never make yourself right with God. You could never do enough good deeds. You could never do enough good acts of righteousness to earn favor with God, to win over God, to score brownie points with God. There, you just couldn't do it. Because according to Isaiah, all of our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags. And yet God, through His inexhaustible supply of goodness, as expressed in His grace, does for you and I what we could never do for ourselves. And He does it through the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians. But God, who is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, dead men can't do anything, He, God, gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Only by God's grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And Paul told the Romans, every one of us has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty for our sins. This is amazing. And yet we take it so for granted that by God's grace, in His grace, He did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. See, all you are and all you have is yours because He's chosen to give it. Through His grace, unmerited, undeserved, you have life because of God's grace. You have the wife you have. You have the children you have by God's grace. You have the job you have. The food you eat is by God's grace. Everything we enjoy, everything we are, and everything we have is because He, God, has been gracious to give it to us, including our salvation. And you can't demand it, and you don't deserve it. You can't demand God's grace. I guess you could, but He's not obligated to give it. And you certainly don't deserve it. You see, God owes you nothing. God is, is not in debt to you. But in His grace, He's given us everything. Every good gift comes from God. The breath that we take, the food that we eat, the, the beauty of nature that we enjoy, the meals that we eat with our loved ones are all a result of God's grace. This last one I want to talk about is one that we really kind of ignore. And it has to do with the patience of God. You know, I'm not a patient person. Um, I lose patience pretty easily. Uh, as most of you know, my wife and I, we have six kids. And when we were raising those six kids in our home, uh, I lost my patience regularly. And so patience is something that's really hard for me to get my head around because I lack it. And yet we're told in Scripture that our God is patient, slow to anger. Wayne Grudem says God's patience is His goodness toward those who sin over a period of time. In other words, His patience is not short-term. Um, if if my, one of my children did something um, once, 
I probably got over it pretty quickly. But if they did it repeatedly, I lost patience. Uh, If it became a habit, I really lost patience. But God's patience is His goodness towards those who sin over a period of time. Once again, think about the Israelites. If, If you read the Old Testament, you see that their sin against God was repetitive. And it lasted for centuries. And yet God was constantly patient with them. And God is patient with you and I. In the Old Testament, the term is really most often translated as that he's slow to anger. He, he doesn't get angry quickly. You know, some of us are hotheads. Some of us fly off the handle at the least little thing. That's not our God. He's a patient God. Exodus tells us that the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. As a matter of fact, this is God speaking of himself, as we saw earlier. This is his description of himself. He is a merciful, gracious, patient, loving God. And he is over the long haul. In the New Testament, it's typically translated as patience. We see in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do you, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is Paul asking the Roman believers, are, are you presumptuous? Are you taking advantage of this incredible patience of God by kind of flaunting yourself, your, your sins in his face? Are you presuming upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, that'll always be there. It is long-lasting, but we should never take it for granted. But the amazing thing is, is that God puts up with so much. He is so patient with you and I. You see, Wayne Grudem tells us that God could destroy all, everything, everyone in his power and be fully justified in doing so. But in his patience, he doesn't. If you think about the flood, the account in Genesis of God destroying the earth and the inhabitants of the earth, except those family members of Noah that he put on the ark and preserved, God ran out of patience. God said, enough is enough. He looked down on the earth and was disappointed in what he saw, and he acted. And yet, from that point to this point, God has been patient. Does our world deserve the judgment of God? Most certainly. And yet God, who in his power would be fully justified in destroying everything he ever made, including mankind, in his patience, he doesn't. That's why I say we take this one for granted. And and again, I, I love to go to the Old Testament to help us understand these concepts because in 2 Samuel, we see in the life of David the patience of God. And I see it in the story of David and Bathsheba, which you're very familiar with. David was sitting in his palace when he should have been at war, and he's on the roof, and he looks down, and he sees this woman next door who's bathing on a rooftop, and he lusts after her. And he sends his servants to go get her, and he ends up having sex with her, and he ends up getting her pregnant. And as a result, in an attempt to hide his sin, he has her husband executed. He puts him on the front lines of battle so that he's killed, so that he can marry Bathsheba. And all this gets exposed. And we read in chapter 11, verse 27, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He sinned against God. And... and The prophet Nathanael says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in God's sight? See, David, the king, the man after God's own heart, had sinned against God. He had done something egregious. He had lusted. He had fulfilled that lust. He had had sex with another man's wife, committed adultery. Then he attempted to cover it up. He tried to get the the man who had been fighting in battle on David's behalf to come home and sleep with his wife. He got him drunk, and he figured if I can get him to sleep with his wife, they'll think the baby is his. But this faithful soldier refused to do so and slept 
on the, the floor outside of David's palace. So David sent him to the front lines and had him killed by exposing him to the enemy. So adultery and murder. That's why it says you've displeased the Lord. You've despised the word of the Lord. You've done evil in his sight. And here's David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. Yeah, you're right. You have. You've sinned greatly against God. You've done something that God finds heinous and that is worthy of death. But God's patient. Look at God's response. Spoken through Nathan, the prophet. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, there were going to be ramifications for David's sin. He wasn't going to get off scot-free. There are always consequences to sin. And in this case, the baby that was born to Bathsheba would die. Not only that, God goes on and tells David that you're going to have trouble in your household from this point forward with the rest of your children. The sword will never depart from your household. And if you read the rest of David's life, you find that that prophecy was true. And it all came to fruition. See, God forgave, and God doesn't put him to death, even though that's what he deserved. He gave him forgiveness instead of death. He showed him mercy. He showed him grace. He was patient with David. And it led David to write Psalm 51. If you go to Psalm 51 and you look at the... the introduction to that psalm, it tells us that it was written by David after he had committed the sin with Bathsheba. And in that psalm, David, speaking to the Lord, says some significant things, and I'm going to summarize them for you right here. He says to God, and this is after he's received the forgiveness, but in this psalm, the song that he writes to God, he says, show me love, show me mercy, Blot out, get rid of all my transgressions, everything I've done against you. He says, cleanse me from my sin, purify me, wash me, hide your face from my sin. Don't look at my sin. Don't, don't even acknowledge it or recognize it anymore. Give me a clean heart. Do for me what I can't do for myself. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away, even though I deserve to be, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Here's what I need you to understand. Every one of these requests are only possible because of the patience of God. You see, David deserved the judgment of God. David deserved the wrath of God. David deserved death. But he could ask for every one of these things and receive them because of his loving, gracious, merciful, patient, his good God. See, these five attributes are significant and they apply to every one of us. And they should be real to each and every one of us who claim to be followers of God, believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. So in your discussion questions, the first one I want you to, to deal with is how should a better understanding of these five characteristics of God his goodness, His love, His grace, His mercy, His patience. Change your perspective on Him and life. How should they impact the way you live your life every day? Secondly, none of these attributes of God are earned or deserved. Why is this so important? Remember, you can't do anything to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make Him love you less. You can't do anything to make God be patient with you. You can't do anything to earn God's mercy or His grace. So why is that so important? Then finally, how does God's holiness or set-apartness make these characteristics more impactful? Last week we talked about His holiness, that He is distinct and different and holy, and He's transcendent, and He sits on high, and He is pure, uh, He is sinless. And yet, we've just talked about these five very personal attributes of God, that in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His sinlessness, He reaches down to you and I in the midst of our sin, and He shows us love, 
grace, mercy, patience every single day of our lives. Why should that impact us? And how should it impact us? Well, once again, I hope you take these discussion questions and uh, end this video and you watch it with others, share it with others, talk about these questions with your wife, your kids, your friends, and allow God to continue to show him his way, show you his ways, and especially his goodness through these incredible attributes. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you, Father, for your patience. Thank you, Father, for your goodness that you shower on us each and every day. Lord, we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. And yet we enjoy these attributes every day in very practical ways. But the most practical way is the fact that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. You did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent your sinless son to take on human flesh, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death in my place and in the place of every individual watching this video. And Father, he made us right with you. And I can't thank you enough for that. Lord, take these attributes and sear them into our minds and into our hearts that we would never forget all that you've done for us and continue to do for us. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I hope you have a great day and a great week. And I'll see you next week with the next attribute in our series, What Kind of God? Have a great day.